Hello and welcome to Adventurous Investor in Conversation. Uh, I'm delighted to have with me Carlos Hardenberg, uh, who's uh, the manager at the Mobius Investment Trust. Hello, Carlos. Hi there. Um, I, I've been keen to talk to someone about emerging markets for a long, long time now. Um, so you, you you are my victim. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you all the questions I've been saving up to ask about emerging markets. Um, first, though, why don't you just give a quick 30, 30 second download on you and, and the fund just so that people can understand it. Am I right in thinking it's it's more of a mid to small cap equities fund than a, than a large cap and, and slightly more emerging markets and frontier markets? Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's, that's what we're doing right now. Uh, in a nutshell, we set up the fund about four years ago after living um, in emerging markets and investing in emerging markets for 25 years. Um, and we really thought uh, it's time for a fund that offers investors access to some of the most exciting ideas which are not in the benchmark. Uh, and typically yeah. the smaller and medium-sized uh, companies are those. And we also thought, number two, it's time to uh, get um, uh, this concept off the shelf and um, to offer a more concentrated fund with best ideas only and ideas which are sort of representing the future um, of emerging markets rather than the past. And that's very interesting because if I look at, I, I've just got your latest fact sheet here, which is um, at the end of August, 24 holdings. I don't know if it's the same now. So very concentrated. Um, and and uh, would you say you're more small cap or mid cap? Where would you put yourself or you slap back in the middle? Um, I would really not want to uh, put ourselves into any of these uh, categories because it really depends. Right yeah. now, most of the exciting ideas we are finding are more in the mid cap segment. Um, it also okay. depends on how you define it. But, you know, what really matters is we have a 98% active share, which means there is no overlap with the benchmark. Okay, cool. I, I'm going to come back to benchmark and, and other things a bit later on. But let's start Let's start with the really big picture. Um, the reason I wanted to talk to somebody about emerging market equities is because I imagine it, it, it must be a, a fairly tough time because uh, if I were to draw up a list of all the kind of macro headwinds, uh, it would be a fairly long list, I suppose. You'd have like stronger dollar. Um, you've got issues around currency. Uh, we've got China geopolitic geopolitics kicking around in the background. The headwinds at the macro level are, are quite substantial, aren't they? Yes, indeed. By the way, can you still hear me well? You just broke off a little bit. Oh, sorry, I can still hear you. Yes, you're fine. You're back in again. Yes. Okay. Um, you're absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, the headwinds are um, pretty substantial, and I, you know, we just what we just tried to do is to compare this current period with uh, some of the more choppy periods in the past, whether it was the financial crisis in seven eight, or whether it was the various um, geopolitical periods of turmoil. I mean, right now we've we've got sort of the perfect storm. We've got a strengthening US dollar. We've got still tension and increasing tension between the US and China. I don't know if you heard about today's decision on further um, restricting the trade yeah. on, in the semiconductor uh, industry. Then we had, you know, three years or more of a global pandemic, which has hit consumers and producers and exporters in many ways. And all of this now coupled with a strong inflation, volatile and high commodity prices, uh, and last but certainly not least, a terrible war uh, on top of everything. Yeah, so absolutely. it is yeah. 
incredibly challenging. The markets have been pricing this in quite radically. If you look at some of the big price movements, you know, many stocks are down 60-70% in emerging markets. They're now trading at a multi-decade low compared to developed markets. Um, growth prospect, you know, talking to you today here out of Istanbul, and I was in, in uh, Brazil not too long ago, we're heading out to Asia. Talking to companies on the ground, it is very, very um, uh, sort of healing to speak to entrepreneurs in emerging markets talking about, you know, um, a relatively normal situation. They just have to cope with these risks. They are not unprepared. Uh, many of the central banks in emerging markets are ahead of the curve. They reacted much faster. Um, leverage is less of an issue in, for most of them. Um, and they're dealing with it. They're just, uh, they're dealing with it and they're investing. They're investing in technology. They're investing in new products. They're investing in new services. Um, so it's not all, um, it's not all negative. Uh, let's just talk. I, I want to just stay on the headwinds just a minute. So, yes. And I will come back to the, to, to the tailwinds. Um, but that was one of the issues, I suppose, in all emerging markets and frontier markets, I suppose, is the currency risk. You, you might pick the right company, and yet you might find the, that company submerged beneath the kind of currency tsunami. It, it, that's one of the things that puts investors off, I think, isn't it? They do worry about just things that are beyond your control. How, can you minimize that risk? Do you, For instance, you're in Turkey. Turkey's got a, um, a currency that's been in freefall for a while. Do you find yourself sort of not going to certain places even though you find good companies there, but because the macro risk is just too big. I mean, you can uh, you can be the best stock picker or pretend to be the best stock picker. If you're in the wrong neighborhood, you will not deliver yeah. desirable results. So, uh, and I think what you just said, um, whether whether it is in our control or not, I actually firmly believe it is in our control, and it is our obligation. Um, to avoid uh, countries or neighborhoods where the macro political risks are mostly reflected by, you know, what's what we're seeing in the currency um, uh, and and of course in inflation and, and interest rates. Um, if if that is if that is too dangerous, if that if those conditions are too negative, and a country is ripe for a depreciation uh, over years. Um, it in most cases makes no sense to uh, to pick a company. So we have not invested in Russia um, as one of the few funds. We've not invested in Argentina in the last four years. We've avoided many frontier markets because of the um, external vulnerabilities. Uh, and I would include, yeah. you know, those sort of ver economies which are also highly dependent um, on uh, on commodities uh, and particularly oil and gas. So we've stayed out of Nigeria, sub-Saharan Africa in general. Uh, we have not invested in those because it's typically boom and bust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but let's talk about two countries that, because they're kind of polar opposites, but they're both linked by the strength of their entrepreneurial class. Uh, you're in is Turkey and Istanbul at the moment, country I know well. Um, very strong entrepreneurial class, great businesses there, some fantastic businesses. Um, but, but, but boy, <laughs> what a big macro drag. <clears throat> Um, do you invest in Turkey? And then the other country, I suppose, the obvious uh, uh, the obvious one here, the elephant in the room is, is mainland China. Again, fantastic entrepreneurial culture, great businesses out there with some fairly obvious geopolitical problems. How do you cope with Because obviously you, you could probably avoid Turkey, but can you avoid China? I mean, what, what's your take on those two very different, but actually in many respects related? entrepreneurial countries. Yeah, um, very interesting comparison. I mean, maybe starting with the easier one, Turkey. 
under normal yeah. circumstances, uh, although I uh, dearly love Turkey and its culture and its people, uh, because of the way that the country is governed, because of the way that the uh, currency and interest rates are politically influenced, it's normally a place where which we would avoid. Uh, Turkey, as a very smart entrepreneur this morning just told me, yeah. is not one country. Turkey has an Austria, yeah, okay. Turkey has a Belgium, Turkey has uh, a bit of a, you know, yeah. Africa uh, in one country, 80, 86, 87 million people with very, very large differences. You've got 40 million, 50 million people which are sort of, you know, um, very poor, not very educated, have no access to information. And then you have, you know, uh, 20 million people which are living uh, a lifestyle which probably in London one can only dream of. Um, so mm -hmm. very, very uh, different realities. We have made... Mm, somewhat of um, an exception in the case of Turkey, we have made two investments and we have made a very decent return in hard currency terms because these companies are very much geared towards exports and they have a large part of their yep. business model based in either US dollars or euros. So they have the benefit of having a lot of their expenses, their costs related to the Turkish lira, which has become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, but their income streams are actually in hard currency. So that helped. It was a perfect hedge uh, and it worked very well in, in the interest of our our investors but uh, apart and beyond that uh, or above that we would be very very cautious uh, about investing um, in a country like turkey china much more difficult to avoid especially when you think about the fact that it probably makes up half of what uh, most investors define as emerging markets yeah um yeah. nonetheless you know, for us, what is what is always uh, one of the key criteria before we make an investment is do we feel uh, comfortable um, with the, the people running the company and the people controlling uh, the interest of the company? And that, that makes it quite difficult in China. Um, often the, the ownership structure is, is uh, not very transparent. Governance structure of companies is not very good. Uh, you have very little independent controls in place. Um, accounting standards leave a lot to be desired. Most of the time, the name of the accountants um, or the accounting firms, which we uncover, we've never heard of before. Um, and they change quite frequently. So here's another risk. Um, so these are these are risks which we don't we are not so comfortable with. And then you also have, of course, over the last couple of years, you had uh, a, a, a new risks uh, like um, regulation, which was tightened a lot. And yeah. um, so what we've done is we've invested. If you know we're interested in in China, we're interested in the Chinese consumer and the increase. Uh, in household income and the ability of Chinese to spend on, on various products and services. And in many ways, the better place to get exposure to this is via, for example, Korean brands and Korean companies yeah. or Taiwanese companies. Now we're getting uh, into uh, more sensitive stuff here, but yes. um, or Southeast <laughs> Asia in general, because the Chinese are also venturing out of China. They're spending money outside of China in Southeast Asia. So there are a couple of very, very interesting businesses here that um, we identified to get exposure to China. Or last but not least, we've invested in Hong Kong. Hong Kong still yeah. is a, a, a place where we feel very comfortable about governance, transparency, oversight. And we invested in a um, large non-hospital healthcare provider um, who under normal conditions um, has every second of um, their client coming actually from mainland China. Okay. Now, I, I, it was inevitable I was going to ask the Taiwan question. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I mean, last thing I looked, you're a, a little under a quarter exposed to Taiwan. And, and look, many of us could understand why you are exposed to Taiwan. It's fantastic economy, great entrepreneurs, great technology sector. So all the reasons that you want to invest in Taiwan, apart from the obvious geopolitical question. And, and, I, and I think there's no, we, none of us have an answer for this because none of us know what the hell will happen. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that awkward question about, well, Taiwan? Isn't the geopolitical risk too great? Yeah, of course, nobody has the perfect answer, but I think the better answer no. you get from locals as opposed to from, uh, you know, journalists from uh, European papers or yeah. so. Um, and uh, overall, the, the, the risk, uh, the tension is real. Um, there is there's a deterioration uh, that is clearly observable over the last couple of years in terms of the, the language we're hearing from mainland China. Uh, at the same time, what we know and what, we, what we're hearing is the Taiwanese companies, um, they're, they're globally diversified. They invested uh, hundreds of billions in China. So they're already in China. Chi- Ch- Chinese companies are, in fact, in Taiwan. So the um, the they're, they're very interwoven these these economies. We also see that, um, and I think that's relatively convincing that the chi- China always has relatively clear priorities in what they want to achieve. Um, after three years of this pandemic, uh, the number one priority is for them to um, to achieve and uh, improve the domestic stability. They want China to grow. They want local entrepreneurs to do well. They want to export. They want to attract foreign capital, and they still want to um, go down this path of transition from dependency on fixed capital investment and export into more domestic consumption. All of this only works if you are not in a uh, you know full blown war or any other external shock. They want stability. That's number one. Number two, they also do know that if they would uh, play with fire here, uh, they would create. Um, they would actually turn their two largest trading partners, i.e. the European Union and yeah. the United States, into their uh, enemies. Uh, and they would, uh, uh, they would be exposed to sanctions. They w- I mean, the, 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 the impact would be so substantial um, that um, no matter where you would be invested, you would, um, you know, you would feel that heat and you would feel that, um, the consequences. Yeah. And also, you know, the Chinese, uh, they're, they're more interested uh, in establishing, for example, their currency as a reserve currency uh, within global central banks. They're keeping a lot of their currency in other central banks. That All of that would be frozen. Um, and uh, so, you know, putting, putting these factors together, um, I would say uh, it is highly, highly unlikely that there would be any um, uh, unforeseen sudden uh, breakout of a war between these two countries. But what's even more, what's much more exciting is what you mentioned and uh, alluded to: the Taiwanese companies, the governance. It is the go- mm. It's the 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 uh, the the golden standard in Asia and maybe all over emerging markets in terms of cleanliness of accounts, in terms of sustainability, in terms yeah. of transparency, in terms of the quality yeah. of the people. And that's why they are so successful, and that's why they are not just successful in Taiwan, but globally. Uh, they have, you know, many of these companies maintain co-headquarters in the U.S. Uh, they produce in Europe, uh, and they're they're really globally diversified. and um, And it's um, it's it's right now very exciting because the market um, has become increasingly skeptical, and the valuations in Taiwan are as attractive as they haven't been in a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed very, very, very low valuations. I just want to just finish off talking to the big picture. Two other countries I think are worth mentioning, which is Vietnam and Kenya. 
Um, Vietnam. Now, uh, if you, uh, London investors quite quite big fans of Vietnam. A lot of specialist Vietnamese Vietnamese investment trusts. Um, and you've you've got exposure to Vietnam. Uh, uh, last thing, last fact sheet here had five percent. Um, are you ever tempted to go above that? Because it does sound as though if you listen to the kind of news flow that there's a lot of there's a lot of investment FDI movement coming from China, maybe coming over the border into uh, into Vietnam and as well India. What's your what's your take on the Vietnamese economy? Uh, it's uh, close to a miracle uh, what they've achieved uh, coming from a country that used to suffer from a chronic deficit, from uh, a depreciating dong, from high inflation. Um, uh, you know, brain drain. Smart Vietnamese would try to move to Singapore or to the U.S. and they turned everything around. Um, they have now a track record of a decade of a you know trading surplus. Um, they have stabilized their currency. They attracted more FDI than any most optimistic uh, economist mm -hmm. ever forecasted. And they have um, occupied now and, and, and um, developed market shares in sophisticated industries like electronics, but also many others, uh, which, again, nobody, nobody ever expected. So um, if, if you create the right playing ground if you re if you create uh, c uh, clear rules um the uh, and an environment mm. in which entrepreneurs can flourish and plan and, and feel comfortable then this is what's happening um so i'm quite optimistic about vietnam um they will continue to attract a lot from china as you said india is a big competitor uh, so i'm 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 uh, mm. i'm very i'm very optimistic uh, it's it's it it remains um, not without risks. I've been traveling and uh, to Vietnam now for 15, 17 years and governance continues to be a bit of an issue. The banking system um, and the private mm. banks in general still um, are not without risks um, and corruption is, is certainly certainly very visible. Uh, but non nonetheless, it's a very attractive place. So would it be more on the fundamental at 5%, 5-6% or so we're quite happy? It's a little bit difficult uh, mm -hmm. to get exposure to everything you want to because of the foreign ownership uh, restrictions. They still have that in place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Kenya. Kenya. What about Kenya? That's interesting because you, you, you're, you said earlier you're a bit cautious on Africa yeah. or sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but I noticed uh, you've got uh, Kenya, which I'm guessing is Safaricom. Um, uh, again, what tempted you there? What 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 tempted you to sort of overcome your worries about Africa? Kenya is sort of a little bit of a Switzerland uh, in the context of of Africa. I mean, it's uh, it's been attracting capital. It's um, more stable from a political standpoint. Uh, you have a lot of entrepreneurs uh, operating out of Nairobi, um, and uh, overall more stable. I guess the fact that they have not discovered oil or gas, but actually depend on imports, uh, was a blessing in disguise. Uh, so therefore, much less corruption and less um, less of a resource curse that this country suffered from. Um, of course, you know the the legacy or historical um, uh, consequences of it being a, a, a colony with better infrastructure and, and relatively good education levels. That all plays a role, but it has really established itself as also a tech hub. Uh, so there's a lot of venture yeah. capital investments in in Kenya, a lot of uh, innovation taking place, yeah. and uh, M-Pesa is um, an incredible story of one of the most successful mobile money yeah, um, uh, models in emerging markets, not coming out of China, but actually out of Kenya. Um, and they've yeah. recently won a license to operate also, uh, Safaricom won the license to operate out of Ethiopia. Uh, they've got a large addressable market in the neighborhood of over 300 million people. 
Um, so it's 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 a it's a shining star in an otherwise overall difficult continent. Okay, so let's now descend back into the portfolio. So um, uh, uh, your biggest holding, for what I can see, is a well, it may have changed since this, but it's a fascinating company I know very well called EPAM, um, which has a how can I put it rather exotic. <laughs> it's it's where, where its various yes. businesses are. What temp, what what interested you about EPAM? Great business, um, I indeed. Like I mean, I came across EPAM first time when I started this uh, career in in investing back in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands. I was based in Warsaw. I lived in Poland, covering Russia, Ukraine, and uh, Belarus right. at that time. And the company is from Belarus. Um, and they at that time won the first deal at that time to implement uh, the online banking system for I think it was UBS and then later Deutsche Bank and that's why we looked at this business and we thought how is it possible uh, that these you know data scientists uh, um, out of out of dodgy places win such prominent high flying deals. Uh, and the rest is sort of history. The company developed in one of the most sophisticated, one of the most uh, successful um, IT businesses uh, on the planet uh, by now operating out of the US, listed at Na- in NASDAQ. Um, and they are globally diversified across different uh, industri- industries from travel, financial services, IT, media, software, life science, healthcare, uh, new emerging industries. And and whenever you have complex IT requirements, whenever it's about digitalization of processes of services, uh, they are the go-to option, and they work with some of, as I said, some of the most complex businesses around the world. Now, when the war broke out, we had had them on the radar screen for a long time. It was always a a company to look look up to, but uh, we always felt that the market was incredibly efficient in pricing this and. Um, as a, as a U.S. listed business. Now, when the war broke out in Russia back in late February, the shares actually fell by close to 70% because um, and a total overreaction yeah. by investors who saw that, yeah, they had, they had staff in, in the region. Um, but um, the company was very, very fast in reacting to this. They relocated everyone partially here to Turkey, partially to Poland, partially to the U.S., um, and they've not lost a single client. They've not lost. Uh, they, they, there was no interruption of business whatsoever. Um, and the market is uh, gradually realizing that this was certainly an overreaction. Um, so yeah, it's it, and and you know the the most exciting thing about this is you get Western management, um, the smartest, best educated people from the in, in a way ex Soviet Union now living all in the U.S. Um, and they understand emerging industries and emerging markets. So they're also in India, they're in Mexico, they're in Asia. Um, and that's why we are so excited. Okay. Um, no, uh, Apollo tubes, by complete contrast, I'm guessing that they don't—they're not involved in IT. With the tubes being the giveaway, um, what, what, what interested you? Yeah, about we them? invested very early in this opportunity. What we liked here is um, sort of the bigger picture in India: more investments into infrastructure, both from the public side and private side. They invest uh, a lot in infrastructure. Of course, during COVID, this had another massive tailwind because. Um, as consumers spent more time at home, they also invested a lot in home improvement initiatives. What attracted us to this is one, yes, technology. They imported a, an Italian technology uh, and they are a leader in ultralight steel parts. Um, they are leaders in market share in many ways. They, in most products, they have a 50 to 60% market share. Um, they, from the beginning, had a very strong balance sheet, uh, always keeping a liquid and very well 
equipped war chest, um, which helped them in, in the last couple of years to acquire market share and acquire uh, competitors. It's well run. It's well governed. Um, they also appointed recently more female uh, candidates to their own board. Uh, they issued a sustainability report. And India is, um, last thing I'm going to say about this, doing a lot to move away from um, the uh, relatively strong dependency on concrete, which has a much worse carbon footprint mm. to more yeah. lighter structures and more steel-based. Uh, so that's also playing into their hands. Um, and then I just want to finish off with EC Healthcare, which you've already sort of mentioned. I think they're Hong Kong listed Chinese non-hospital healthcare. Is that right? What, what, what interested you about the that founder, business model? The founder. He's a, he's a very impressive um, still relatively young entrepreneur who saw that opportunity. And he what he basically saw is he said, okay, uh, no Chinese trusts a, a Chinese doctor. So that's why the Chinese, as soon as they are half, as, as soon as they can afford it, they will try to travel elsewhere. Um, and Hong Kong offers a good location. Um, at the same time, Hong Kong is seen as quasi a satellite U.S. healthcare system with the same rules and regulation, education mm. with very strong brands. So he consolidated some of the most prestigious brands in dental, um, in dermatology, in eye care, in medical checkups, and put this all under one roof and gave it a turbo boost with very client-centric, um, also technology-based uh, services. Uh, and um, of course, the last three years were a nightmare because half of his clients couldn't travel to Hong Kong, yeah. but here's just a matter of time for them to return. And he, again, went into the crisis with a very, very liquid balance sheet. So that, that, helped, uh, that helped very much. Let's just look at the fund now. Uh, I said at the beginning, small discount, not very big. Um, what do you think are the catalysts for getting the share price up? I mean, you can't avoid some of the headwinds. Some of them are to do with the global economy anyway. And Share and stock markets are in yeah. in a pretty bearish mood at the moment. So you know, you're swimming against the tide, as we said earlier. On. But what what do you think the catalysts for the long term are? What what do you think will get that share price up, get the discount down, and maybe into a premium over the next six to twelve or eighteen months? Um, so first of all, I think since we launched the trust, uh, the NAV return over thirty percent um, is 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 a proof of the concept that you know you can deliver very significant outperformance when number one in the peer group, uh, most other funds actually had either zero or partially negative return now over the same period. Uh, concentration helps and, and buying the right companies with the right profile. So we've invested in rather conservative business uh, over that time. Um, what what the, the, the key triggers are, first of all, I think this degree of undervaluation um, of emerging markets against developed markets, which is now, as I said, as, at a multi-decade low uh, at this very point in time, it never lasts very long because uh, the uh, corporate earnings will come through and they will be recognized and they will be the ultimate source for re-ratings. It's really the earnings of companies. And if we look at the t type of companies we've invested in and how they're preparing for the years to come, they're now um, positioning themselves to become uh, and to stay uh, some of the key component suppliers uh, to, for example, factory automation, um, to Internet of Things de uh, development around the world, uh, to things like um, the automobile uh, technology transition, which we are observing, so sensor technologies or special screen technologies. They're very optimistic and they can see the orders actually filling in, uh, of uh, the order books filling up for 24, 25. 
So I think what will cause this re-rating is actually the realization that fundamentals are very much intact in EM and especially in these companies uh, which we've invested in. Um, yeah. uh, Carlos, so on, the, on the valuation, how low is the valuation at the moment? And what's the average valuation of the, of the 25, 24 stocks in your portfolio? But generally, how yeah, low so are valuations in In general, we are seeing like, um, uh, uh, if, if you look at the, the, the relative um, uh, valuations, if you look at earnings or EBITDA, you know, EV EBITDAs or book values, so on earnings, we see discounts now of around 40 to 50% compared to the averages in emerging and in, in developed mm-hmm. markets. Uh, on book values, depending on you know, how you look at this and what you include or exclude, but anywhere between 20 and 35% discount relative book values that we are seeing here in terms of in terms of our portfolio um it's a it's a mixed bag so first of all the growth expectations are very decent uh, anywhere between uh 15 and 30 percent eps growth for the next two years um and again depending on the 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 sector you look at uh we are seeing discounts to the tech tech sector certainly now has a, a trading at a discount of somewhere around 40% compared to US tech or European tech. Okay. Okay. Any other drivers that will push you forward? Um... Yes. I think uh, two two factors I would also mention. One is macro. I think the realization that after three years of pandemic, there has not been a sort of a domino uh, default uh, impact or default chain that went through emerging markets, mm-hmm. rippled through emerging markets like we had in the 90s or so. Um, the realization that macro um, looks far better, uh, central banks uh, have done a good job, um, that uh, these economies are less dependent on pure U.S. dollar refinancing, but um, are now you know standing on many different other pillars. Uh, a lot of um, local currency um, financing activity, which has developed over the years. So that's one thing. But also, if you look at the overall structure, the type of exports, the unit value of exports on average from emerging markets to the rest of the world has dramatically improved uh, from low-key, low-end sort of uh, products to now some of the most sophisticated products and services which are being exported. That's another um, insurance policy and um, uh, certainly a factor that that is not properly priced in right now. And then last but not least, but all, what, what we, um, uh, with regards to our portfolio, we, we actively engage with portfolio companies and we are seeing that they're working a lot on improving governance and transparency as well. Um, and and that's, a, that's another driver um, where we see um, plenty of room for improvements and the market realizing uh, that actually these risks are n- n- not, not as bad as they're sometimes perceived. Yeah. Um, two, two last questions. One, a portfolio question. A- any new stocks that are either in your portfolio or like to come into your portfolio? We talked a bit about some of the big holdings. Anything new that's been out there that's come in or about to come in? That gets, oh, yeah. I mean, we have a very excited. strong pipeline right now. The, it, it, at this time, it's not a problem to uh, get excited about investment opportunities in emerging markets if you're really in it, if you're really diving into this. It, no. It's a fantastic yeah. time because everybody is so unbelievably negative uh, so you can uh, you have the opportunity mm. to now you know build build the ship for tomorrow uh, at very reasonable prices we've recently um, bought the world's uh, leading producer of electronic paper 
um, supplying the likes of um, oh, Amazon right. Kindle, but also electronic shelf labels, uh, which are used in supermarkets and retailers. Um, so th these kind of mm. businesses, they're unique, they're protected by patents, they are very innovative, uh, they're run by, by real captains, by real uh, entrepreneurs, um, and attract some of the best talents. Um, there are plenty of them uh, all over the place. And in Korea, we're finding ideas. Right now, we're looking at a software business in uh, Thailand slash Indonesia. And even Latin America has uh, interesting opportunities. One last question. Uh, one thing has helped you, <laughs> I suppose, is that in your sector, the emerging markets investment trust sector, your competition has somewhat been um, culled out or is in the process of being culled out. Um, and I suppose what that reflects has been, you know, not, not you know, Scott Gems has gone to liquidation uh, and uh, Fundsmith has pulled back their EM fund. Uh, well, one of the things that it, uh, Fundsmith came out and said, it's quite difficult to beat the benchmark. Uh, and a lot of people, particularly at minor macro level, have sort of given up trying to work out whether or not it's a good idea to go to China, not go to China. It, how, how have you found that environment as a fund where people are asking questions about, you know, can you beat the benchmark? Closing down funds. You talked a lot about active share at the beginning. How does I think this all one of the big out? problems is, and I've been sitting on the other side, sort of, by you know, working for a very large fund for many, many decades. Um, they're asking you, um, please beat the benchmark, uh, but as, at the same time, please don't be too yeah. different from the benchmark because that's how they define risk. <laughs> and that's what we changed yeah. radically from day one um, by saying um, we actually. Um, define our level of comfort by uh, the the degree uh, of distance to the benchmark. The further away we are, the better we feel. Um, so you can only beat the benchmark yeah. if you're really different to the benchmark. Um, and as long as, you know, so what we've done is we, we set out very clear criteria how we define risk. Define, we define risk by looking at capital structure, we're looking at debt, we're looking at foreign exchange exposure, we're looking at management risk, we're looking at margin risk, competition. That's how we define risk, not by the basis points you are included or excluded from the benchmark. Um, and then, you know, what really uh, excites me is the fact that you find such, really, for the lack of a better word, incredible businesses outside of the benchmark, uh, which are well run, which have found a unique uh, product or service, which are uh, attracting fantastic people. So there's, the, you know, there are tens of thousands of companies outside of the benchmark. So my recommendation is... Um, invest outside of the benchmark if you want differentiated returns and the, the for us the good news is that our competition is largely copying each other so that overlap is very high and they're very close to the benchmark yeah 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 and i always well, i always wonder worry with the benchmark that you have to if you're going to stick with very large mega large cat companies you're you're you in a sense most of your focus is on asset allocation and the big macro picture and the problem with a lot of that is that you can almost never second guess yeah what yeah. China's going to do, what India's going to do. There's no, I mean, I, I mean, if, if you've got some magic crystal ball, great, but I, I've got no idea what they're going to get up to. So therefore, therefore the ETF, absolutely, as you say, the ETFs, because they just don't play the game, they exactly. just play the reaction, they just play the markets. And so therefore, so it, 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 and therefore, but I suppose there is a risk there that the only way you could do that is by going outside the benchmark, which does mean that you have to go more small cap or more mid cap, mid, mid and small cap. And I suppose the worry there is, is that you don't have the same liquidity that the large or mega large cap companies have. Um, which that, is why that's the risk, um, the a strategy like this cannot grow endlessly.
there's there, you know there's a there's a very clear limit in yeah. terms of the size um, or the pool of assets you can run like that with that flexibility uh, and that approach, which is why what you know we said from right from the beginning um, where, where we would close the fund and, and we will stick to this. Excellent. Well, look, uh, Carlos, you've given me a lot of your time. Thank you very much.